going to have some descriptions in the Bible today, and I'd like for us to try to visualize some of these biblical descriptions. When I think about it, it must have been a sort of a remarkable sight what happened. The scene here, there's this huge Assyrian city of Nineveh. It's around the 8th century B.C., and it's a city with a circumference of over seven miles. So in the ancient world, this was a huge city and famous for its size. And I think that's just the size of the wall. Who knows how much there was outside of it. The proud Assyrian Empire was one of the most violent and brutal in all of human history. And one day, through the gates, walks this lone Israelite prophet. The book of Jonah picks up the account of what happened. Turn, please, to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3. Now, Jonah has already gone to sea in a ship and returned via fish. And he is repentant for not obeying the eternal, and he is now obeying. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I will tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. That's not around the, you know, that to to go all through the city would take three days just to travel through it. Verse 4. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. And he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then the word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes, And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat nor drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. This is an exceedingly violent culture. Verse 9, who can tell if God will turn and relent and return and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Okay, three points about this. One, does that sound a bit far-fetched to you? Come on now. Admit it. Here, the second point, here's this brutal regime that has oppressed the northern ten tribes of Israel without mercy. And when lone Israelite prophet walks in there to the capital city of Nineveh and says they're going to be destroyed if they don't repent, suddenly it's all sackcloth and ashes. Oh, woe is me. We believe everything he says. And then third, they were pagans. And they had a particularly brutal culture. That's what they're known for in modern times. Why would they do a 180-degree turnaround for this helpless Israelite prophet and, by the way, an invisible 
Israelite God that they didn't worship. They were pagans. They worshipped stone images and so forth. Why believe Jonah? Why didn't they just kill Jonah and get on about their work? Why would they be so afraid of a lone Israelite, a defeated people, and then who was telling them that they were in danger of the wrath of an invisible God? Well, is something wrong here? Have you ever wondered about that? It's just, just a fanciful legend that was came down maybe through the centuries, got written down long ago, and found its way into the Bible, into the canon of the Bible. Jesus Christ gave the sign of Jonah that it was the only proof, the only proof that he is Messiah. Is our faith in Christ based on a myth? What do you think? How would you answer skeptics about this? Because they say that. They say, <laughs> you crazy, this couldn't have happened. Couldn't have happened. It's a fanciful story. It's a myth. Yet Jesus Christ said he based his Messiah on his being the Messiah on the book of Jonah and the sign of Jonah. They, the skeptics say that it is not possible for Jonah's visit to Nineveh to have happened the way it is presented, and it's just an, a myth that has grown perhaps over the centuries. Okay, here's some things you need to know. Jonah was a person in history. He was a historical person. He actually lived and was a respected prophet in his day. We have the book of Jonah, but he's mentioned elsewhere. Today I'd like to go over the reasons why we know that. Next, Jonah was likely well-known to the Assyrians. They knew who this guy was and was feared in Nineveh. We'll find out why. Next, Understanding some things about Jonah's times historically and his work can add very helpful background to understanding the events that happened in the book of Jonah. These are very focused events, but we can fill it out a lot by understanding the historical context in which these things occurred. Next, Nineveh had a very compelling reason for repenting. It was a well-informed decision that they made. And then, finally, Christ is the Messiah, and the sign of Jonah is a miracle that actually occurred. It was actually an extremely important prophecy, and Jonah was a prophet, and the book of Jonah is given as a prophecy that was fulfilled by Christ. The fulfillment of that prophecy is a very important matter to each of us and particularly in this season, because in an important sense, it's still being fulfilled today in each of us. Jesus said that the sign of Jonah was the only sign he would give that he is the Messiah. We'll find out why. No sign of Jonah, no Messiah, no salvation. We should be interested in that around this time of the year. I think that by the end of this sermon, not only will you be convinced that it was quite possible that Jonah's adventure in Nineveh could have happened, you'll be confident that it did happen. The title of this sermon is Nineveh versus Jonah. First, some history on the Assyrians and their capital, Nineveh. Uh, 
There's quite a bit about them because when Nineveh, the capital that was excavated, they found all kinds of things buried there. This was back in the 1800s. The skeptics back in the uh, late 1700s, early 1800s, thought, well, this was a fictional city. It never really existed. And then somebody actually went out there and found it. They used the Bible and other local materials, and it was surveyed by Claudius Rich in 1820. It was situated on the east bank of the Tigris River, opposite modern Mosul in what's now Iraq. So this is a real place, not a fictional place. It's been excavated, and they found all kinds of histories and interesting things about the Assyrian Empire. One well-known historian, Will Durant, describes them. And I'm just going to read some of the things that this um, comes from. This comes from uh, the story of civilization, part one, our Oriental heritage. This is just that one is over a 1,000 pages, and the set is 10 long. I mean, it's, it's gigantic history. I've got one in my library. But none of it is known in modern times for a number of reasons. And the, the, it went on for a long time. The, the empire went on for a long time. It rose up and rose down in many, many ways. But it was known for its brutality and their ruthlessness. It was one of the things they're remembered for today. So under this... Article in the history, The Horror of Nineveh. I'm going to read here from Durant's history. The entire history of Assyria is filled with a reign of violence, terror, torture, and killing conquered peoples as they pridefully carried home parts of their enemies' bodies as souvenirs of war. The king of Nineveh would usually bring home the severed heads. Um, conquered. All right, we'll skip that part. And... The opposing generals would get even worse treatment, if you can imagine. The, Il- the Elamite general, Dananu, was flayed alive, then bled like a lamb. His brother had his throat cut. His body was divided into pieces, which were distributed around the country as souvenirs. Nice folks. We'd like to have them as neighbors. Well, finally executed stone carved reliefs were excavated in Nineveh. You can see pictures of them online or in, in history books. And uh, they show many of the brutal, brutal tactics. They carved these things out and put them up and showed, this is what happens to you if you mess with us. And they would show some of the things that they did so we know what sorts of things that they did. It's submission or a terrible death. What do you choose? What do you choose? You're going to pay you got to work. you got to do what we say. Or look what we will do to you. These were rough customers, okay? They were known for their brutality, and they used terror to subjugate, to control, and enslave those they conquered, and to extract tribute and forced labor. Okay, turn to Leviticus chapter 26, verses 14 through 17. Leviticus chapter 26, verses 14 through 17. We're looking at the setting, the setting of the book of Jonah and the things that happened there. These are the promises and the curses that God gave Israel. We often read these. And they actually occurred. The curses actually occurred to the northern ten tribes of Israel. You can go down and list them, some of the things that happened. But if you do not obey me and do not observe all these commandments 
And if you despise my statutes, or if your soul abhors my judgment so that you do not perform my commandments but break my covenant, I also will do this to you. I will even appoint terror over you. Dr. Meredith has mentioned that before. Appoint terror over you, wasting disease and fever, which shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of heart. When we preach a witness and a warning, and when Mr. Weston preaches a witness and a warning, we are talking about what can happen to this country if it doesn't repent. We preach personal and individual and national repentance, and this is what can happen. I will appoint terror over you, wasting disease and fever, which shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of heart. You shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you shall reign over you, and you shall flee when no one pursues you. And we won't go into the detail of all of this, but many of these things, perhaps all of them, happened to the northern ten tribes of Israel after they rejected God. Down to verse 44, though. Yet for all that, when they will, um, they, referring to Israel, will be in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away, neither will I destroy them utterly, but will, uh, and to break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. If all of Israel died, how could he keep the covenant that he made unconditionally with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Couldn't happen. So they have to remain alive, but they would go through severe punishment. And the church teaches this, and this is part of our message of warning to Israel, where all the places that they have been scattered. When the northern ten tribes split off from Judah and Benjamin under Rehoboam, Israel quickly went into idolatry and rejected the Sabbath. Israel lost its identity, the identifying sign of the Sabbath, so they lost their identity as a nation. And while Judah kept the Sabbath, and all these centuries, thousands of years, have kept their identity. Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5. Isaiah chapter 10 and verse 5. God called Israel, uh, rather Assyria, the rod of my anger. The rod of my anger. We're getting a picture of this people, what they were like. Verse 5, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. You know, the church teaches that modern Germany will serve that role again. But when you look back at ancient Assyria, man, they were a big rod, weren't they? Wow! If you're going to be beaten with that rod, that's like a two-by-four to be disciplined and chastised by the rod of Assyria. We believe such things will happen again. Isaiah 19, verse 24 and 25. Isaiah chapter 19 and verse 24 and 25. Assyria and Egypt will not always be the bad guys against Israel. What I've described here are really, really bad guys. A brutal, ruthless terrorizing culture. Verse 24. This is a very, I would say, an extremely hopeful 
Scripture. In that day, Israel will be one of three with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the land, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Bless is Egypt my people, and Assyria the work of my hands, and Israel my inheritance. So there's great hope for these peoples in the future. So to just summarize point number one, the Assyrians were a particularly brutal culture, as I said, and their capital was Nineveh. Assyria ruthlessly oppressed Israel. They were the rod with which God chastised Israel. And Jonah wanted Israel's God, the eternal Yahweh, to destroy them. For Jonah, the city of Nineveh would have been an extremely dangerous place to go. All right, point number two. We're going to do a little Bible study here. Um, we'll go to Wakefield's Bible aerobics class a little bit. We're just going to run through some scriptures quickly to make a point to show you how prevalent this is in the Bible. And I wonder if you've ever noticed this before. I saw this some years ago that I've been... As I read, I sort of keep track of it. The Assyrians and other pagan nations around Israel were aware that, and I'll say Yahweh, I'm not going into sacred names, but that's the name or something similar to that is what they uh, uh, called him, that Yahweh or the Eternal was a god and knew that he could do some really rough things when aroused and in anger. He could do plenty of damage to them. But other nations beside Assyria and their capital Nineveh knew about Yahweh, but did not obey. Let's go to 1 Samuel, chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. We'll look at 5, chapter 5, 10 and 11, and 6, verse 20. 1 Samuel, chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Just some examples of this. I'm going to look at... Several of them. This is talking about the Philistines, a pagan culture, if there ever was one. And the Philippines were afraid and said, God is coming to the camp. We're breaking into a story here. You can read the whole thing if you like later. They said, God is coming to the camp. And they said, woe unto us. For there has not been such a thing heretofore. Woe unto us! Who shall deliver us out of the hands of these mighty gods? These are the gods that smote the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. What's happened is that the um, the ark has been captured, and now they're in serious trouble. Turn over to uh, chapter 5 and verses 10 and 11. Therefore they sent the ark of God to Ekron. And it came to pass, as the ark of God came to Ekron, that the Ekronites cried out, saying, They have brought about the ark of God of Israel to us, to slay us and our people. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it go again to its own place, that it slay us not and our people. For there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city, and the hand of God was very heavy there. Um, chapter 6 and verse 20. We're just picking up just a few things here and there. And the men of Bethshemesh said, Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? And whom shall he go up from us? 
So the Philistines had an idea. They, they didn't just invent this on the spot. They knew some things about Yahweh, the Israelite God, and his power. Daniel chapter 3 and verse 26. Just some other examples. Daniel chapter 3 and verse 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar, who was the ruler of Babylon, came near to the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you servants of the Most High God, come forth and come hither. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came forth out of the midst of the fire. Nebuchadnezzar knew about the Most High God. This was not great news to him. Ezra, chapter 1 and verse 2. Ezra, chapter 1 and verse 2. Ezra and Nehemiah, just fascinating people. Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God, this is Yahweh Elohim of, of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. So he was aware where his power came from, though he was a pagan and worshipped other gods, as far as we know. Chapter 7, Ezra chapter 7, verses 15 and 23. Skipping around, just picking up some of these. As you read your Bible, particularly the Old Testament in the future, you will, I think you're going to start noticing and finding these things in the Old Testament where the people were aware of the God of Israel and had great respect, usually, for his power. Sometimes generations forgot it to their uh, very unhappy end. To carry the silver and gold which the king and his counselors have freely uh, offered unto the God of Israel, whose habitation is in Jerusalem. Verse 11, just read that, looking back up. This is the copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest. Well, he knew that the dwelling place of the God of Israel was there. He was aware of the God of Israel. Verse 23. Whatsoever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it be diligently done for the house of God of heaven. For why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons? I'm a smart guy. (laughs) I'm going to do this. I'm not going to incur the wrath of this Israelite God. Are you kidding me? um, This is cheap for me. I'm going to give them the money. I'm going to give them the means. I'm going to let them go and keep their God happy. Why should I generate his wrath against me. That's what he said. Artaxerxes. Look at a few more. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 10. Ezra, Nehemiah, turn over a few pages. Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 10. This is talking about what the God of Israel, the Eternal, did 
to Pharaoh and showed signs and wonders upon Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knowest that they dealt proudly against them. So you did get you a name as it is this day. He had a name among the peoples of the region all the way up to the time that it was written. Chapter 6, Nehemiah chapter 6 and verse 17. Nehemiah chapter 6 and verse 17. Is that the right one? Verse 16, sorry. So it came to pass that when all our enemies heard thereof, and all the heathen about us saw these things, that they were much cast down in their own eyes, for they perceived that this work was wrought by our God. So the people of the land who were not obeying God could see that these things were being done. Oh, no, the God of Israel is back. The God of Israel is supporting them. We're in trouble now. You'd think maybe they could obey themselves, but they wouldn't. Isaiah 63, verses 12 and 14. Isaiah 63, verses 12 and 14. Once again, just a number of scriptures to just show you the prevalence of this throughout time in, in that part of the world. It seems that many of the cultures were aware that that was a supreme God. They may even have their own sort of images about him, but only the God of Israel was revelatory. Others reasoned about him. They tried to think of what the supreme God might be like, but the God of Israel tells you what he is like. Verse 12, once again, that led them out by the right hand of Moses with all his glorious arm, dividing the water before them to make himself an everlasting name. He makes it mean they know who he is. Joshua 2, verses 9 and 10. Joshua 2, and verse 9 and 10. Just another example going way back in the history. When Israel came out, of Egypt, and were entering the land, the people already knew about their God and were afraid of him. Joshua chapter 2, 9 through 11. This is talking about Rahab, verse 8. And when they were laid down, she came up unto them upon the roof, and she said unto the men whom she is protecting, I know that the Lord has given you the land. The word Lord is the Tetragrammaton, Yahweh, has given you the land, and your terror is fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what uh, you did to the two kings of the Amorites and that were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. As soon as we had heard all of these things, our hearts did melt. Neither was there any more courage in any man because of you. Because, for the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and the earth beneath. She was a believer. She said, I'm switching sides, guys. I'm I'm going over to the winning side on this one. Something's going to happen, and I don't want to be with a losing side. 
I'll just mention uh, one other thing. That was a time after Jonah's time. You remember Sennacherib, the king that came down? Well, he came down against Judah in that day, and his uh, general, uh, Rabshakeh, blasphemed against the God of Israel. Apparently by that time, which is generations later, they had forgotten about the God of Israel, and he blasphemed, and 185,000 died in one night. By the way, that was recorded by other cultures that mentioned that he went against them. They were defeated when a plague went through their ranks, and they had to go back. Then Sennacherib returned to Nineveh and was killed by his own two sons. Okay, so why didn't the pagan nations worship the eternal? Why didn't they do this? Well, maybe for the same reasons today. I mean, human nature hasn't changed that much. As I said, I think they had a concept of the supreme God, but, you know, I think they liked their rituals better. Most of them had fertility rituals. Um, They literally went to the temple and worshipped with a temple prostitute in many of these cultures. And I just think that they were more attracted to their their own uh, rituals. They rejected the righteousness of God. They didn't want to live by the the laws that uh, the God of Israel had presented to them any more than they want to live by them today. God's laws arise from his own character. His commandments arise out of his own character. His statutes are based on his own character. We can look at these things and find the nature of God. If you want to know something about the Father, know something about Jesus Christ, look at the commandments, look at the statutes that are derived from him, and they tell us a lot about them. But they they didn't want to do that any more than they want to do it today. They would love to nail his commandments to something, to a cross or a tree, to get rid of them. They didn't want them. Loving this world... The carnal mind is enmity against God. And this is Satan's mountain who deceives the whole world. They are all deceived. So they really don't want to do that. The carnal mind rejects it. When they reject God's law, they reject him. That's why he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. The commandments come from him. One of the ways to know God is to Read his law and study it and internalize it. We love it. David said, oh, I love I thy law, and we do too. But they didn't. They didn't. So they were happy, or much rather, to just put it away and not obey it. James chapter 2 and verse 19. James chapter 2 and verse 19. This gives a reason in the New Testament of why someone would, who knows about the eternal would not obey him. And James explains it. He says, you believe there is one God. You do well. The devils also believe, and they tremble. The devils, the demons, the fallen angels, they know who the God of Israel is. They don't want to obey. So they don't worship him. They reject him. To summarize point number two. There are many biblical examples of the pagan peoples around Israel being aware of the God of Israel and his power, but not obeying. They didn't obey. Israel knew about him, too, and, of course, they didn't obey at all as well. They rejected him. Point number three, 
point number three. Jonah, the son of Amittai, was actually a historical figure and is mentioned elsewhere in the Bible as a respected prophet. You might not have known that, but he's actually mentioned that way. Let's turn to Jonah chapter 1 and verses 1 through 3. We're identifying him by his name and the name of his father. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. We know that that was the instruction the first time that he did not obey. The second time the word came to him, he did. All right, we're going to find him again. This is an important scripture here, so please turn to it. Second Kings chapter 14, verses 23 through 27. Second Kings chapter 14 Verses 23 through 27. You might, I bet you've read this before, maybe you just read right over it. But here is the same man, Jonah, son of Amittai, doing something very important. This scripture is filled with, is a fulfillment of God's promise that he would not completely destroy Israel's for its sins. It's a rather brief account by a writer in Judah. Verse 23, in the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, the king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of um, um, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria and reigned 41 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made uh, Israel to sin. Verse 25, he restored the territory of Israel from the entrance of Hamath to the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he had spoken through his servant, who? Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. Okay? This is a huge territory. He restored, verse 25, the territory of Israel from the entrance of Hamath to the Sea of Arabah. That is a huge swath of land. Because, why? Jonah, the prophet Jonah, went to um, this uh, particular king of Israel. This was the Jeroboam II. That was the first Jeroboam. And this, this is many years later, Jeroboam the second. Verse 26, For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, whether bond or free, there was no helper for Israel. And the Lord did not say that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam the son of Joash. Remember Leviticus 26, verse 44. If there were no more Israel, there's no more covenant with Israel. So he had to save them to preserve the covenant and the promise that he made to the, uh, to the fathers. So we have this very interesting situation that Jonah instructed Jeroboam II in a prophecy from God to restore lost territory, and he did. This raises some interesting questions. Once again, let's go back and look at the scene. Let's look at the times. Why would Jeroboam act on this? Who is he facing? He's facing the Assyrians, the, the baddest people in the world. All right? And who is, uh, why would 
would Jeroboam respond if this guy comes in? Hi, my name is uh, Jonah, and uh, I want you to take up arms and go out and fight the Assyrians. He's going to say, are you crazy? You know what they'll do to me if I do that? Why would he even do that unless Jonah was well known to him as a prophet for the God of Israel, whom Jeroboam II didn't obey but knew existed just like the pagans did. That's why he responded. There's no other reason. Here's another one. Why would Israel respond and fight? Well, they were told that Jonah had told them from God, the God of Israel, to go do that. So they did. They went out. They engaged the Assyrians, and they defeated them, a terrible defeat, and drove them out of all of those lands. You think that if everybody knew about this in Israel, maybe the Assyrians knew about it too. Surely the Assyrians noticed what happened and why. And then there was the little adventure in Jerusalem in the days of Hezekiah later on. Nineveh and other nations had good reason to respect and fear the pronouncements of the God of Israel. And also from this guy Jonah. He was a respected prophet. So summary of point number three, just say this, that Jonah was known, he was respected as an active prophet around the 15th year of the reign of Amaziah, king of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam II, king of Israel. So the historical context is Jonah is a real person in history. He's walking around doing things, and people know about him. He's not a mythical figure. You see, let's look at what the environment is that's going on when the book of Jonah uh, recites the events. So point number four, point number four, let's add a little bit of additional context and let's take another look at the account of Nineveh versus Jonah. First thing I want to mention is that in prophecies, God sometimes, well, he does prophecies different ways. One way is he says, You go tell the people this. Here's what you will say. Yes, sir. You go do it. Other times he has had prophets act things out. Act it out. There are a lot of examples of that in the Bible. Let's look at one here, Ezekiel chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Ezekiel chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Once again, we're breaking into account, an account here just to get the sense of what's going on. He had his prophets act out prophecies for emphasis, like Ezekiel, Hosea, and others. He had them act them out. Verse 4, uh, chapter 4, rather, beginning in verse 1. You also, son of man, take a clay tablet and lay it before you and portray it, portray on it a city, Jerusalem. Lay siege against it, build a siege wall against it, and heap up a mound against it, set camps against it, and place battering rams against it all around. Moreover, take for yourself an iron plate and set it as an iron wall between you and the city. Set your face against it, and it shall be besieged, and you shall lay siege against it. This will be a sign to the house of Israel. You ever seen kids do that? I used to do that as a kid. You probably, maybe you even do that as an adult. You go to the beach and you build a big sand castle and you get some shell army people, or maybe you have little soldiers and you put them around and you, you attack the castle and everything. Kids even draw pictures of that. If you give them half a chance, they'll draw a picture of tanks 
on their line notebook paper during class, you know, one thing tacking. You know, there's some heads bobbing up and down. You did that, didn't you? Okay. All right. Well, you know, that's what he did here. If you want to imagine what happened, that's basically it. He had Ezekiel do act out and do a little model of the siege of Jerusalem. Verse 4, lie on your left side and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel upon it. According to the number of days that you lie on it, you shall bear their iniquity. People are walking by and saying, why is he lying there like that? He's been lying there day after day after day. Oh, that's because, and here's the reason. Oh, really? Hey, come over here. Let me tell you about this. Word would spread because they could see it. It wasn't just words. It was an ongoing message being acted out for them. Verse 5. For I have laid on you the years of their iniquity according to the number of days, 390 days, so you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. And when you have completed them, lie again on your right side, and you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Judah 40 days. I have laid on you a day for, uh, for each year. So Jonah was acting out a prophecy. I know you've heard me say this before, but I I like to think of the the holy days that we're going into as a seven-act play, kind of street theater that we act out. God has us act this out so that we never forget it. You know, when the Passover occurred in ancient Israel, it was a prophecy, in a sense, of what would happen later on. Very important things. The gospel of the kingdom of God is a prophetic gospel, and we act this whole plan out every year. Also, you could think of Pentecost that way as well, the giving of the Holy Spirit, the marriage of Israel in ancient times, and the making of the covenant there. God is made, making a new covenant with us. And then, oh, the fall holy days. How about that? They prophesy what God will do in the last days, three times a year. All right, let's go back. You remember what I said originally when we started the sermon? I gave three things. Let's reread the critics' complaint against the veracity of the book of Jonah that I gave at the beginning of the sermon and examine it in the light of the context that we've put it in here. Okay? Remember what I said. I'll restate. I said the following regarding the account of Jonah entering Nineveh. Quote, Does that seem a little far-fetched to you? Remember that? Well, maybe not so much now. You could see how Jonah could have walked through Nineveh and told them, and told them what God had said. Also consider this. The ship that Jonah was on had to return to its port because it had lost all of its cargo and undoubtedly told everybody what happened. Ship, you know, sailors talk. We got back into the port. They said, you won't believe what happened to us out there. We had a terrible thing. We threw all our stuff out. It lightened the ship. And then finally we threw this prophet, the Jonah guy. We threw him over. The seas went calm. He disappeared. He's gone. Well, then Jonah shows up on the beach along with his ride. Can you imagine Can you imagine? Let's keep in mind that the Assyrians knew and had good reason to fear this dangerous prophet, Jonah, son of Amittai. And the news of such an event happening to a well-known prophet would have even reached Nineveh. Giving you the context of what happened, 
A lot of these details, of course, um, we're seeing what would have happened. We're reasoning a bit about them. But you could see how these things could have happened. All right, second, I said, quote, Here is this brutal regime that has oppressed the northern ten tribes of Israel without mercy, and then one lone Israelite walks into their capital city of Nineveh and says they are going to be destroyed if they don't repent. Suddenly, they're all in sackcloth and ashes, unquote. How about that? Is that Well, yeah, that could have happened. That could have happened. The ruler and nobles of Nineveh made a well-informed decision to do what they did. I can certainly see that. Number three, I said, quote, they were pagans and had a particularly brutal culture. Why would they do a 180-degree turnaround for a helpless Israelite prophet and an Israelite God that they didn't worship? Why believe Jonah? Why didn't they just kill Jonah and go about their business? Hmm. Because they were terrified of the power of Yahweh, the eternal, the God of Israel. They knew about him, as did all the other cultures in the area. We read about it many times, and there are many more instances of that in the Bible. They knew that he could and would do what he said he could and would do through his prophet. The Ninevites may have been ruthless. They may have been brutal, but they weren't stupid. They made a well-informed decision. So summary of point number four. When we look at what happened at Nineveh, in the context of the actual history of the times, it is clear that the Ninevites made a rational decision. Okay, point number five, moving along. The book of Jonah is an extremely important prophecy that the Eternal had his prophet act out. For our benefit, the Eternal himself, who was Jesus of Nazareth, was going to fulfill it on earth. It was foreshadowed something that the Eternal himself would do. We are to take on the sign of Jonah and to be raised up as Christ was. How? We'll turn to Luke chapter 12 and verse 50. Luke chapter 12 and verse 50. Christ said, but I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how I am pained or straightened till it be accomplished. To be, future. He had already been baptized by John when this is said. What's this other baptism that he's going to have? Matthew chapter 20, verses 22 and 23. Matthew chapter 20 and verses 22 and 23. But Jesus answered and said, No, you not, you know not, rather, what you ask. Are you able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of, and to be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? And they said unto him, We are able. And he said unto them, You shall indeed drink of my cup, and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. It was going to happen, but that was another baptism that he was anticipating. Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 39. Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 39. 
Let's just read verse 39. And they said unto him, We can. And Jesus said unto them, You shall indeed drink of the cup I drink of, and with the baptism I am baptized with, you shall be baptized in the future. We are to take on this same sign. God's people and his followers are to do that. Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. This is a memory verse for us. But when they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? What shall we do? And they said, repent. We remember that this time of the year as we put the leaven out of our homes. said, be baptized for the remission of your sins. Pictures what we do at Passover. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Pictures what we do at um, um, what happened at Pentecost. What we teach is this. The Bible tells us that we must come to Christ in true repentance. And we do preach that. And it's important that we understand that. If we reason that we can break God's commandments and not sin, we are deceived. That may sound obvious to you, but I'm telling you, out in the world, they think they can do that. We can't repent of sin and break God's commandments at the same time. If you tell that to someone Maybe in the worldly churches who say, oh, it's all nailed to the cross, they kind of scratch their head and say, yeah, that makes sense. I see that. But I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. They think that the nine commandments are part of the Christian life, but once you add the tenth one or the fourth commandment and make it ten, then it becomes the old covenant. Makes no sense, but that's what they think. They don't really understand what God's law is. Repentance changes what we're going to do, but it can't change what we did. Only one thing can change what we did. That's the sacrifice of Christ. It removes the guilt of our past transgressions. Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. What we remember this time of the year. Grace alone does that. All the repentance, all the commandment keeping we can ever do in the future cannot earn the removal of the guilt of our past sins. You can't unring a bell. You can't change the past. But you can through Christ. Through Christ. He alone can remove the guilt of our past sins. The church has always taught that. Um, reference you to Mr. Armstrong's booklet, What Do You Mean Salvation? I've got some excerpts here. Maybe you haven't read this at all, or maybe you haven't read it in a long time, but let me read a bit of this to you. Under the category, law-keeping won't justify. Many of you will remember this. Law-keeping won't justify. It does not make up... Let's see, we'll start. But what do you find? You're still cut off from God. Actually, we see in a moment, we'll see as a moment, you you can't keep the spiritual law with a carnal mind. But even if you could, your obedience now is only what is required of you now. It does not make up for past law-breaking. That penalty still hangs over you. As we have seen, by being law-abiding now, no flesh shall be justified of past law-breaking. A man convicted of committing murder last month does not erase his sentence by being law-abiding this month. I almost want to do this. I hear him read this. It's just remarkable the way he writes. All the good works in the world, he continues, all the law-keeping cannot justify you of your past guilt. 
That is what your Bible teaches, and that is what the plain truth teaches. That is what Herbert W. Armstrong and the World Tomorrow television and radio programs proclaim to the whole world. And by the way, we do as well. Now, where do you find yourself? You are uh, now submissive. Obedience to God's law, is this is this necessary? Most assuredly it is. Does this justify you? A thousand times no. Capital N-O, no. Capital N-O, no. Exclamation points. That's what we've always taught, brethren. When we live a repentant life of obeying God and keeping his commandments, which is his Holy Spirit indwelling us in us makes possible. When we do that, his spirit begins to change us and make that to be what we want to do. I remember hearing a fellow a long time ago, this is back in the, the days of the apostasy, and he said, Well, you know, keeping all those commandments has been such a burden. Sabbath oh, has been such a so burdensome. What are you talking about? The Sabbath? I look forward to it all week. What a blessing. The holiness of God's Sabbath is a delight. It's something we want, we appreciate, we enjoy having this different, completely different spiritual day, a day of rest. Wanting to keep God's divine law, which is an expression of his character, is a matter of conversion. And I think the people who reject it are just, they're saying, (laughs) maybe I don't have God's spirit. Maybe that's what they're saying when they reject God's law, reject his commandments, want to get rid of them. But you don't. We love them. We embrace them. For us, they're good things. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 10. Although I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, though I did repent, for I perceive that the same epistle that has made you sorry, though it were for but a season. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance, for you were made sorry after a godly manner that you might receive damage by us in nothing. Uh, it's, it's important to know that remorse is not the same as repentance, and many of the out in the, uh, the mainstream Christianity, kind of confuse the two. They say, oh, if you really feel sorry, then you repent it. No, you could feel sorry and sit there in your chair and do nothing unless you change. Something changes about you. You haven't repented. Mr. Armstrong used to say, repentance means change. Repentance means change, and it does. For godly sorrow, we could call that remorse, works repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world works death. We go, we are sorry for our sins. We are grieved about them. We want to change. We, are so, we look at the, ourselves in the mirror of God's word, or the way I like to say it, God's word illuminates our world for us. It shines a light on the world around us, and we can finally see it for the first time. 
And we want to change. I want to change. I'm so motivated. And then we do repent. We come to Christ in true repentance. That means if we, one thing, if we're breaking his commandments, we start keeping them. Because we can't repent of sin and say, and then break God's commandments and think that we're doing that. Works repentance that leads us to salvation. Romans chapter 6 verses 1 through 11. Romans chapter 6 verses, we may not read all of this. This is a good, good one for you to read on your own. This is the baptism chapter, but a good thing to read around this time of the year. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know you not that so many of us that were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? There it is. Sign of Jonah. The baptism that he took upon himself. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism unto death that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Going down in that watery grave. And welcome to our new little sister, by the way. Going down into that watery grave, as she did, and came back up in the likeness of his resurrection. We shall do the same thing. Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 41. Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 41. Many confrontations between Jesus and the scribes and Pharisees. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they have repented, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And the greater than Jonah is here. In the judgment, it's talking about last great day, the great white throne judgment. The men of Nineveh are coming up in that. All of Nineveh will be there. And they will look over at the generation who saw the Messiah saw him and would not repent, even though he preached to them personally. They wanted him dead, and they will condemn them. Can you imagine that, being condemned by the Ninevites for unrighteousness? Whoa, that's pretty unrighteous. But that's what the one who gave the prophecy to Jonah said would happen. We must take on the sign of Jonah just as Jesus did. So summary of point number five. Why is the sign of Jonah the only sign that Christ gave? Why? 
It is the only sign he gave because Christ is the only way we can live, as we heard in the sermonette. Thank you. We did not plan that together, as you heard in the sermonette. Christ is the way, and he was showing us the way by his example. No sign of Jonah, no life. It is important to us. Point number six. Why did Jesus have to die, and why did he have to be sinless? A good thing for us to remember in this time. Well, God is perfect. He is the very definition of righteousness. His law arises from his character. If we say, oh, how love I thy laws, the same thing as saying, you know, I really like the way you are, God. I love you. And God says, you say you know me and you don't keep my commandments. No, you don't. You don't. You don't love me. The love of God is keeping his commandments. God's commandments, his definition of right and wrong as expressed in his law, arises from his own nature, his own character. And we live and move and have our being in him. Jesus, the eternal God, lived from eternity, and he lives now. He is an infinite life. All things were created by him. The purpose of mankind is to become part of the family of which Jesus is the firstborn of many. And we are the many. The church of God is the many. We are to enter into the oneness of the family of God as full sons of God, just as he is. We will be like Jesus when he comes, resurrected as immortal sons of God. As he says, there is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21 Philippians chapter 3 and verses 20 and 31. There's a lot on the Bible on this, but just give one here to, so we'll have it in view as we go forward. We will have spiritual bodies like him by which he can subdue the universe. For our citizenship, breaking in here, is in heaven from which our citizenship comes from heaven when Christ comes, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Think of all the kings of the world. Think of Sennacherib, all of these kings. They wanted to subdue Everything they could to themselves, and all they did was die. They couldn't. But he's going to make us immortal. We're going to have that kind of body. I don't know about yours, but my body is getting older. i got things wearing out, parts falling off. Who knows? I'm looking forward to that new body. And he promises us, but it's going to be immortal. If it's going to be immortal, then it must be like him. Christ's bride It's not going to be like of another species. It's going to be of the God kind, of the family of God, the God family. We have this tremendous promise, but a sinful, corrupt, carnal nature can't be part of the divine family for one minute, much less for eternity. He's not going to have that there. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have the guilt of our past sins. 
all have to be clean and reconciled to the Father. And Jesus made the way for us in this great plan. Flesh and blood can't achieve that. God is holy. God is holy. And we can't enter the divine family unless we are holy also. He says, be you holy because I am holy. Oh, that's nice. Okay. (laughs) That's really important. We have to be holy in order to be in the family, in the holy mountain of God. Nothing profane can approach God or be in the oneness of the God family. And unless we are cleansed of our sins and made holy by God's Holy Spirit dwelling in us, we can't be resurrected to immortality in the first resurrection. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. Oh, that's nice. I I see that. (laughs) That is literally true. Literally true. The wages of sin is remaining in the flesh, in your grave. You cannot be resurrected to immortality. You are trapped forever. How will you get yourself out? Dust, bones, you can't. You can only be resurrected. You have no immortal soul. It's not here. It's not here. It's a pagan idea and a huge roadblock to understanding what God is doing. Our Father has made it possible through Jesus Christ to us to be completely forgiven, to be reconciled with him. Through Christ, we are no longer accountable for the guilt of our past sins and have ongoing forgiveness. As is explained in 1 John chapter 2. Jesus made it possible for us to be justified and guiltless, and through him we have redemption. How? Well, the understanding of that is foundational to our faith. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8. It says, The Lamb of God, our Passover, was slain for us from the foundation of the world. God put this whole plan into action from the very beginning. It's always been there. We know that by his stripes and by his broken body we are healed. We know that by his shed blood we are cleansed of our sins. Isaiah chapter 59 verse 2 said that by your iniquities have separated you from God. Why? Well, you are profaned by your sins. God is holy, and unless you are washed of those sins and made holy by the indwelling of his spirit and knowledge of his truth and by his faith in you, then you are still profaned. You cannot be resurrected to immortality, and your iniquities have separated you from God. So why did Jesus have to die? Well, that was the only way. The sins of the world were laid upon a perfect, infinite being, And then he died. He died. The guilt of our sins was wiped out by his death. And because he was holy and sinless, he could be resurrected to a glorified immortal body, not needing reconciliation with the Father. You know, when I was running around in the the world, and you as well, before your baptism and receipt of the Holy Spirit, um, 
You you had sinned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He wasn't. He has not sinned. He had not fallen short of the glory of God. He could be resurrected to immortality because he was already reconciled with the Father. Guess what? Only he could carry your sins and mine. You ever realize that? He was the only one, the only being, the only person in existence that could do that, that could do that. Only him, because he was sinless, and he loved us, and gave himself for us. To be resurrected to glory, we must be cleansed and holy and reconciled to the Father. Christ made it possible. See why? He had to be sinless. It had to be him. There was no other. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verses 15 through 21. Second Corinthians chapter 5, and verses 15 through 21. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves. But for him who died for them and rose again, this is a sign of Jonah. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Now, all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. I've been reading it for the last hour. Now then, we are ambassadors of Christ, as though God were pleading Through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Only he could do it, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So what was nailed to the stake of the cross? Well, not the commandments. (laughs) No, it wasn't. You know, if you had been there and looked... You would have seen three things. Well, there would have were three things there. You would have seen, you know, a a plaque or a scroll or something with, um, you know, the king of the Jews on there. You would have seen that nailed up there to that stake. You would have seen a man suffering horribly nailed to it. But there was something you would not have seen, although it was there, nailed to the cross or the stake. The sins of the world were laid upon him. Article about that in March, April, 2017, Living Church News. Our sins were laid on the Passover Lamb of God, and our sins are passed over through him, through his death. He died. Only him could do it. Only he could do it. He died taking our sins to the grave with him. And when he died, he made it possible for those who accept that sacrifice to have their guilt removed as far as the east is from the west. He removes from us our sins. We sing about that. And we have a remembrance of that every year when we take the Passover. 
We also have the foot washing ceremony on Passover evening. And Heaven Living Church News article on foot washing of the March-April 2013 Living Church News. A good review of that. Jonah's adventure is a baptism and a death and resurrection in type saved his shipmates, and he went on to warn Nineveh, which repented. Nineveh did it. Good for them, for a while anyway. But the world in this age, which is ruled by the God of this world, has been called to repentance. We're doing it. You're doing it through your ministry, through Mr. Weston, and through the ministers, our presenters. We do that all the time. But they won't repent. They reject it. But God says the world will eventually repent after its near destruction and the binding of the God of this world, which is essential for that. We emulate Jesus' death by baptism, buried in his likeness. And Jesus pictured his death, burial, and resurrection in the same manner that we do, with the sign of Jonah in a watery grave. So, point number six, to summarize, Jonah had to be underwater for three days and three nights. It was a prophecy, an actual event in history, and it could only have been done the way it happened. It couldn't happen any other way. So the sign of Jonah was the only sign that Jesus would give. There was no other. He didn't need another. It was not necessary. It would only have confused the matter. Others did miracles. The prophets, like Elijah, raised someone up. Uh, the uh, two witnesses, they are uh, um, dead for three and a half days. But only Christ took on himself the sign of Jonah. It is unique as an event in history. So I hope that not only are you convinced that it is possible that Jonah's adventure in Nineveh could have happened, that now you are confident that it did happen. It is important to us that it did. We understand that God's divine law expresses his holy, righteous character. And because of that law, which is holy and just and good, we as human beings have transgression and sin and guilt. We don't have to live with that old destructive guilt. Jesus Christ made possible faith and repentance and the sign of Jonah which is baptism, wherein we are dead to our sins and have a new life in redemption and reconciliation to the Father. There is redemption through our Passover, Jesus Christ. There is no eternal life without that redemption from the penalty of our sins. And then finally, we have resurrection to immortality. Perfect. A perfect plan. Complete. It's all pictured in God's holy days. Three times a year. I love that. Three times a year. We must experience the meaning of the first one, Passover and Days of Unleavened Bread, before you can experience the meaning of the second one, which is Pentecost. And you can't experience the meaning of the third one, which is the Fall Holy Days, picturing the kingdom of God and the events leading up to that, unless you've experienced the second one, receipt of God's Holy Spirit. Marvelous. Passover and unleavened bread, God's people made innocent. Pentecost, God's people made holy. Trumpets and the fall holy days, God's people glorified. Perfect plan. 
And then in Mr. John O'Gwen's memorable phrase, once glorified God's children stand on the threshold of eternity. What a plan. And it all begins with what we're doing now in the fall holy days. God tells, says that he tells us the end from the beginning. And Christ did not stay for three days and three nights in the grave because of what um, uh, the prophet Jonah did. Jonah did what he did because of what Christ was going to do. Christ, as the God of the Old Testament, made that happen as a prophecy that he was going to personally fulfill in the future. The book of Jonah is a prophecy. Each of us must have something in common with Jonah. And we must do what Jesus did for our redemption, the sign of Jonah. If you're in God's church and have been baptized, you have done that. In his likeness, we go into a watery grave and rise up out of it in the likeness of his resurrection, waiting in newness of life for our ultimate resurrection to immortal bodies like his. The sacrifice of our Passover, Jesus Christ, makes this possible.